Titus women trust that Jesus is enough to meet every need and satisfy every heart. Praying you will be encouraged and strengthened through this message. Let's look at Genesis 25 and let's start with verse 19. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah his wife conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Talk about the big picture. <laughs> Don't you love Jesus for that? Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were two nations and twins in her womb, and the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. Afterward his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was sixty years old when she bore them. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in the, from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I'm weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, Look, I'm about to die. What is this birthright to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose, and went his way. And Esau despised his birthright. Jesus, we just thank you for anointing your word, for coming right now and speaking to each one of our hearts through the power of your word. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you. Chapter 24, the beautiful love story of Isaac and Rebekah, the longest chapter in Genesis. Gives you an idea of God's priority on our relationships and our, our marriage relationship especially. And so we literally see where God has orchestrated and brought Isaac and Rebekah together so that there is a divine act of God to bring those two together. And we have a, a marriage literally made in heaven, which is a beautiful thing. And I remember hearing my sister share one time, and one of the points of her message was, it shouldn't be this way. What happens when you have a marriage that begins in heaven that God orchestrates and puts together in such a unique, precious way and we're at, 
Isaac loves Rebecca, and it's, it's with a passion and a purity that he loves her. And so you have this marriage that's put together, and you think surely it should work out where they live happily ever after. There's no problems, no dysfunction, no anything. And what happens? We begin to see God's working, but we begin to see that it doesn't quite work out the way it should work out in your mind and my mind. So beginning of chapter 25 ends with the death of Abraham. And then it gives a little genealogy on Ishmael, his, uh, the son of the flesh, the, the son of the spirit. And Ishmael is sent to a far away from Abraham. All the inheritance goes to Isaac. After Sarah died, Abraham and another wife, Keturah, had six sons by her. But before he dies, he sends her away and sends those six children away so that there is nothing to interfere with the child of promise and the blessing of God. And then he dies a ripe old age. Do you know what this is illustrating for you and I? Once again, God is putting into Holy Scripture that there is the work of the flesh and there is the work of the Spirit. And in your life and my life, there needs to come a place where we put away, we get rid of anything in our life that competes with the work of God, the Spirit, in our life so that we are not producing lives that are built on the flesh. And you cannot have the flesh and the Spirit co-inhabiting because you end up with the flesh eating up the spirit. And what you need to do is say, in, in Spanish, the word is rechazar, to get rid of, to absolutely make a break, so that you make a break with anything that deals with the flesh. Hard. Yes, very hard. It's literally a death to self. But isn't it beautiful that God lays it down all the way in the beginning? If you and I are going to walk the walk of faith and walk the way it was, walk of the Spirit, we need to let go of anything that would hold us back and any of the sins of the flesh. Then we have how they respond to life. Somebody called me last night, and it was the sweetest thing I felt that she gave me part of the message for today. And listen what she said. She called from Ohio. She said, do you know what, Beth, I've been thinking through Scripture, and I read this in a character um, sketch where it said that many times God gives us a vision, and then God allows us to go through the death of the vision, and then God resurrects the vision, but it's a supernatural fulfillment of the vision. Isn't that good? How many times God, is, especially when we're young, or when God begins to put a call of our lives, and many of you have experienced that, or you wouldn't be sitting there in Wilmore, God called you. And he said, and you came to Wilmore, and he gave you a vision. And you literally arose and left all and followed him. And you're sitting right here in this Bible study today. But then you got here. And what you and I expected when we left all to follow Jesus is not exactly what has happened in our life. And so... What happens? God gave them the vision. He gave the vision to Abraham, and then Isaac picks up the vision. He said, you're going to be blessed, and you'll be blessed with children and progeny. In fact, there'll be as many as the stars in the sky. And he said, all this territory you're walking on will belong to you. That was the vision. Well, did Abraham see the fulfillment of that vision when he went to heaven? No. He had one son, 
And then he had one piece of property, and it was his burial site and the burial site of his wife. And so then the vision goes on to Isaac. And Isaac gets the big vision that God gives to him. And you would think, and he leads him to the wife of his choice. And then what are they immediately confronted with? Barrenness. Barrenness in the life of the one that is to carry on the big vision. And children, as many as the stars of the sky. And he's saying, now wait a minute, God, if you're gonna, what are you doing here? And is God working according to their expectations? No. Does God always work according to ours? No. Sometimes it's very discouraging. <laughs> and so what happens? But they respond differently than Abraham and Sarah. What did they do? In the rest of Genesis, we learn that Abraham prayed for the Philistines when God shut their wombs, but we never have a record of him ever praying for Sarah. But Isaac comes and he pleads with God. He pleads with him. And God hears him. So he makes it a matter of consistent, of fervent prayer. Prayer that God would move in and change the situation. Now we know from life experiences, God does not always do that. The way we, ex but he, but God always answers prayer, whether it's the way we expect or not. In this case, they went to God. They didn't try another alternative in the flesh that produced an Ishmael. And what they produced was that she, Rebecca conceived. When she conceived, what happened? It was a beautiful, easy sailing pregnancy. Absolutely no problem. Because isn't that what always happens? You have, isn't that our dream? Aren't those what the Lori Wood books are about that you get at the bookstore? Where you have it all just fall into line? And you have an ideal marriage made in heaven and then a few problems that they all work out and it just ends up. And what, so you have the ideal marriage and then you have sterility. You have this vision that God's given you and barrenness. And the only way out of the problem and the situation is the same one that brought the two together, a supernatural act of the eternal God to change the situation. And God is wanting to get you and I into situations where the only way out is himself. And that you and I can make a mess of it and try to put things together on our own, or we can trust him and let God work it out and get a picture that we can't even imagine. So he prays and Rebecca prays. She prays over her pregnancy. And what does God say? She says, if all is well, why am I like this? And she inquires of God. I love this about Rebecca, and I also love it about God. There is nothing in our lives too big or too little for us to bring to the heart of Jesus. And so God says she comes over a problem with her pregnancy. And what does God think? This is one of my most favorite parts of Scripture. She says, why am I like this? And expecting him to probably say, you have a bouncing baby boy. And what he says is, Rebecca, you have two nations in your womb. The problem with me, and maybe the problem with you, is I never, ever see big enough. 
I only see right here. And what our eternal God sees in precious Jesus, they see the big picture. And do you know what I think this says to you and I as wives and mothers and women? It said the children that are in our hearts or the children that are in our houses or the ones that we carry in our souls or in our bodies, our children and our grandchildren, you and I may just see that little bitty bit of humanity. And what God sees, I see two nations. The potential in human Life is incredible in the heart of God. And the calling of God on so many of the women gathered here today is the highest calling because what you are doing and what we are trying to do is invest our lives in those that will go on and go on and go on. And God is seeing not just the instance right here. He is saying, I see two nations. And he said, there'll be Edom and Israel. And they'll struggle in your womb and they will struggle. And he said, the older will rule the younger. And he said, and they will, and the older will serve the younger. So she had twins and she named them not too, I creatively, I don't think. She named Esau for his appearance, Harry. <laughs> and then she named Jacob for his action, heel. So she, that reminds me a little of my mother. She expected a bouncy baby boy December 25th, 1954, when my twin sisters were born. And she went to the hospital Christmas morning and expected one big boy. And they said, well, you have two little girls. And she was in shock for three days. They were nameless. She couldn't think of She had one boy's name picked up. And when Daddy got there, he, went, he left her off. He couldn't be with him then. He left her off, went to preach a Christmas message, came back and had twin baby girls. And he showed up and she and she said, Honey, we have twins. And she said, oh, How many? I said, Two. She said, Isn't that just like Jesus? You asked for one and he throws. So it was two days, three days before she could name them. And then she just named them Sally and Susie. <laughs> so, so they, so. Uh, maybe that was the case here. It was just a state of my goodness. Jesus. So they were born. Now they grew and they were different. Are your kids different and my kids different? Different as night and day. Different as they can be. One was a hunter, a man of the field. And the other liked to stay home. Now I want you to notice this next thing right here. Isaac loved Esau. Why? Why? He favored him. Why? He hunted game, and Isaac liked food. Did it have anything to do with the character and nature of either son? No. Did it have anything to do with the character and nature of either son? No. That struck me in the middle of last night. No. There was Isaac knew God, he lived with Abraham, he had the blessing of God on him, and yet there was an Isaac, a soft spot. And what was it? It was for gain. And he built his whole family pattern and relationship around his soft spot. So that he chose one child over another, and he pitted the family at odds against each other, 
And we don't know why Rebecca chose Jacob. Maybe it was in self-defense. And so what we have is a family divided where you have Isaac and Esau and Jacob and Rebecca. Why? Because there was a preference in a father's heart. He liked venison or game. And you say, well, that is silly. And I thought, what about you and I? What are the soft spots in our hearts? They can be as innocuous as UK basketball <laughs> or bas baseball or football or novels or movies or looking pretty or, or shopping. And the child that feeds into the thing that you and I like is the one that we prefer. And it has absolutely nothing to do with the child, and it produces absolute havoc and dysfunction. Now, what kind of value does God place on families and on marriages and on children? We're getting just a taste of it. God works so hard to get Isaac and Rebecca together. And then God says, you don't have just two babies. You've got whole two whole nations. Just think of what I want to do with those two babies. Just think of the potential in them. And what happens? The whole family structure crumbles because, begins to crumble because of something that did not come under the knife of the cross. Now Isaac didn't have a lot of teaching on what it means to walk in total submission and abandonment to Jesus Christ. But boy, there's not one of us in this room who can say that. We have all of Holy Scripture. We live right here in town. And do you know what? One of the reasons you and I need to come into the experience of entire sanctification and let the knife of the cross be cut against every single one of our affections and affinities is because the nature and the future of our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren depend on those choices we make. What soft spot do you have and do I have in my heart towards sin? Because if there's anything in my life that is more than Jesus Christ, we are in danger. We are in danger. Now, is it any accident in the next verse that Jacob is cooking stew and Esau comes in from the field and he is famished? And it may be he's gone so long that he is literally at the point of feeling he's going to die. And he has no game of his own, and he is very tired and extremely hungry. And he says, give me some of that food. And Jacob presses in for the advantage and says, sell me your birthright. But do you know what I wondered? And I don't know, because I, this is just what I wondered in the night. Food had an incredible priority in the life of his daddy. Could it be that what Isaac sowed as a wind, Esau reaped as a whirlwind? So what was the value system of his father? The value system had been that he liked him so better than his brother because he fixed him game. So it had incredible importance in his life. And so that he was willing for a pot, a bowl of soup 
to sell his rights as the firstborn son, which gave him a double inheritance to the family fortune, which was great and even got greater, gave him the rights of all the name and all the rights and privileges of being the head of the family. And could it be, in the, if he had made a different choice, that it could have been Abraham and Esau, Isaac and Esau, And for a pot of soup, he sold all that. And do you know what? Scripture is very hard on Esau. In Hebrews, it talks about Esau as he was a fornicator and profane. Because for instant gratification, he was willing to sell his place as the firstborn. He had to have it right now. He could not wait. It didn't matter what he was giving up. He had to have it. And what is fornication? It's when you and I want to have something right now and it is sacred and we are not willing to wait for God's time in holy matrimony. And we want our needs met just. And so we do not wait. And we move into the profane because we take what is not ours and we use get it no matter what it costs. So Esau sold his birthright. And Jacob moved in and got it. The scripture's not as hard on Jacob. And I don't know why, because he was a scoundrel. And I think what we get here is a little bit of God's foreknowledge, but he doesn't make our choices for us. God knows the choices you make and I make. And he knows the choices we will make. God doesn't make them for us, but he knows the choices we will make. But he gives us incredible free will. But that when God is planning in this, in, in the eons of time and in the big picture, he knows that even though there's a Jacob who's starting out as an absolute scoundrel and presses for the advantage at every point, there is still something in Jacob that wants the blessing and the birthright. And there's something sacred and spiritual about both of those things. And Jacob perseveres until the night he wrestles with God and comes through. And God gives him a new name. And the question today, as we meet together, the potential in every one of our hearts is for God to either help us to say yes or for us to begin those little insidious no's, those little soft spots we don't bring under the blood of Jesus, and they end up eating us up. What has God planned for you? Has he planned for you and I to make us like Jacob's, that he can turn into an Israel, that there's still a people today? Or has God planned for us to be like that, but for a bowl of soup, a, a little bit of stew, we're willing to sell all of God's plans for us and settle for way low, way below our privileges, rather than pressing on into what God has for us. I think God is looking for us when it gets difficult, 
when he gives us a vision of what he's called us to, that we are to hold on to him and not let go. And that we are to say, Lord, I will seek your face more now than I've ever sought you. Get rid of any place in my life where the enemy can grab hold and let me go through with you. So the blessing can come not only in my life, but the blessing can come on those that will follow after me. Last night, yesterday, I got Transworld Radio's paper on Dr. Paul Freed. And uh, he went to heaven December 1. He was 78 years of age. And I want to just share a little bit from his life. I reread part of his biography. But do you know what? His parents were missionaries in what is present-day Syria at, for 30 years. They were Christian Missionary Alliance missionaries. And the daddy was working in, in Chicago with Burroughs um, Adding Machine Company. He had a very good job. He and his wife were ardent little Christians. And one day, one of the men he was working with and had witnessed to and witnessed to and witnessed to, turned to him and said, he said, Freed, if you believe what you say you believe, that I'm going to be lost if I don't ask Jesus into my heart. What about all the people all over the rest of the world? What about them? Well, Freed said, I think they'll be lost as well. Well, the non-Christian said to him, why under thunder are you here, if that's the case, enjoying this nice office, that comfortable easy chair, and your job? If this is such a passion with you, get off my case and go do something about it and put your life where your mouth is. And he went home, but he couldn't sleep. Next day, he went back to that office and he couldn't sit in that chair. And he began to feel God's strings of his heart, and he ended up a missionary to the Arabs. And he and his wife were the sole missionaries for 300 unreached Arab villages in Syria. And that's where Paul Freed grew up. And he said he grew up in a home where they lived by faith. He said when they went, his dad left, and went to Bible of Naya Training College, and they they used up all their resources. Sound familiar? And he said, I just feel like God's got to come through for us, and they got to the place there was no money. They had a nickel. So they his wife said, wait, don't give up yet. Let's take a walk. They walked down to the local drugstore, probably like Sims, bought a candy bar for the nickel, the biggest they could find, fed it to little Paul Freed, their little boy. He was surprised to get a candy bar in the middle of the morning, ate it because that's all they had, and, he, and the daddy turned to the wife and said, I'm going to call Burroughs and ask if I can come back. They said I had a job, but I'm going to go back. Because this is not working out. Beginning in chapter 26, there was a famine in the land. 
This isn't working out. This isn't what I expected. God's called us here, and we don't even have money to feed each other, feed our faces. We've made a big mistake. I'm going to go back. And his wife said, well, I get, let's hold on a little longer. They walked back home, and Paul ran ahead. The little boy opened the door, and there was there were bags and bags and bags of food. Someone had brought, and they never found out who it was. And his dad didn't give up, but he held on. And it ended up in Syria for 30 years. Paul Freed felt God call him as a young kid, as a college kid, into full-time service. Well, he went, he was a pastor for a while. And then Tori Johnson challenged him to go to Europe with Youth for Christ. And he went to Spain. And a little boy he talked to said he'd never heard of Jesus Christ. And Paul Freed said, do you know what? There needs to be some way to reach Spain on a mass way with the gospel. And he began to think about radio. And do you know there are 11 transmitting stations today with Trans World Radio giving the gospel of Jesus Christ over 80%, maybe 90% of the world. They have just opened up another one. And it's beaming into all the Middle East. It's all over Russia. It's all over China. Do you know what he said? I reread it last night. He said, do you know the one that seemed to make the big difference in our home? It was my mom. He said her life was like a well-oiled wheel in terms of an engineer. (laughs) He said every day, she spent systematic time with Jesus with that open Bible and with prayer and she spent quantities of time and he said out of her life radiated the love and laughter and sweetness and order of Jesus himself and every time my dad would say we've got to go home she'd say let's just wait just a little longer and God didn't move in again. And he'd move in again. And he'd move in again. Do you think that little mother that went to heaven before she saw all that God would do had any idea when they said yes and left Burroughs, when they said yes and went to Bible college, when they said yes, we'll stay even though we're hungry, and God came through. When they said, yes, we'll go. Do you think that little woman with those yeses had any idea her one son would someday be helped to make possible 80% of the globe to hear about Jesus? I don't think she had the capacity to think that big. Are you an Esau? Are you a struggling Jacob? Not there altogether? 
but pressing on. Jesus is looking for women who will stand in the gap, but we have to have clean hearts, holy hearts. Let's pray. Let's just make right now your seat an altar. Are you living in the bulletproof place of victory? So that there's nothing that you can think of or know of that's not under the blood. Any unforgiveness? Any bitterness? Any rage? Any lying? Any deceit? Oh, dear Lord Jesus, we pray today you would take away the love of sin and the power of sin and the guilt of sin and you would burn out sin in our lives and burn in holiness. I praise you for a Savior that can do this. And you would put in our hearts a passion for you, for holiness, for Jesus, for souls, and for the world. Transform us, God, we pray today. In Jesus' name, amen.